families. Of course, uh, Thanksgiving, we've all hopefully had a time to be with some family the last couple of days. But families can be complicated. But when I think about that family, where you actually have a baby who is God, and parents who are thinking, wow, this is what you want, God, out of me? And, you know, our family got together this weekend, and we made uh, homemade decorations together. And it came time yesterday we were supposed to paint these things. And, man, I just have no creative artistry, <laughs> whatever that word is. And everybody let me know it, you know. <laughs> if they say that if people pick on you, they love you, I really felt loved yesterday. <laughs> uh, but it was, it was a great time, though just to be together with family. And we're going on uh, for a couple of weeks talking about the family. The message today, we're in Genesis chapter 3, Trouble in Paradise. And we know that, man, all those shots of electricity that go through you and you meet that one and then you get married. And then after a while, that's not the only shock you get. It seems like this relationship continues. And, and so anyway, but our reading this morning I want to start at Genesis chapter 2, verse 23, and then just read through 3, verse 1. So if you will stand in our great God's honor, I want to read from his word. The man said, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say, You must not eat from any tree in the garden? Let's pray. Master, we bow ourselves before you this morning, Lord. As we look at the truth you have preserved for us this morning, I just simply ask you speak, God. And Father, we need to, Lord, we need to be reminded where strong relationships are grounded, Lord. And I just pray as we take time, Lord, to look at this trouble in paradise that we will be ministered to as there may be some trouble in our paradises. And Father, may you minister to us. In your name we pray, amen. One of my sister's closest friends owns a condominium in Hawaii. She also owns a home in St. Martin, Rhode Island. And anyway, she's very generous to my sister. Every few years, I think she hasn't lately with all the COVID stuff, Every few years, she'll call my sister and say, for the price of a plane ticket, come up here for a week and stay in the condo with me. So I've asked my sister, will you please ask her, what are the chances of adopting a little brother? I am available. But since it's probably been about eight years and I haven't heard anything, I'm assuming the answer is no. <laughs> but there again, I must be loved. You know, to, so, but Hawaii, I remember one year she was there and she called me and it was cold here. It was, I think it was in the 30s or 40s. And she called and she said, 
Well, I'm sitting out in a lounge chair, and it's a beautiful sunny day. I'm in Hawaii, and uh, I just wanted to say, eat your heart out. You know, (laughs) Jesus, thanks, I love you too. But we know that although Hawaii is often referred to as paradise, there's problems in paradise as well. Some of the problems that was listed in an article that I read said there's lots of traffic, there's uh, problems with crime, and that many of the things that you buy, uh, it's 30% increase from what we pay for it, so things are more expensive. And, of course, constant traffic that never seems to end. And one of the biggest problems is, what do they do with all that trash? Well, one of their proposals is to ship it to the mainland. To us, gee, thanks, paradise, uh, that uh, we may have. So, yes, even in what seems to be paradise, there are problems. And so it was with the first couple, first man and woman. They were in paradise, the Garden of Eden. I mean, things were perfect. There was no reason for shame because they were in perfect connection with God and with one another. But we'll see today in the text that that would change. God has a design for families. He certainly wants us to be close, to be intimate, and yet there is a brokenness that we all know. You see... The idea to a perfect country, it's not just the economy, stupid, as the politicians say. It also has to do with families. Abraham Lincoln once said, the strength of a nation lies in the houses of its people. And so in the very homes of our nation, we find the real strength of our country. And it appears that so many families are in trouble. We hear... It just drives me crazy, I confess, a message so often of this is what divides us, this this group against that group. This nationality that lives in America now against this one, or or the color of this person's skin against another person's skin. The truth of the matter is, it is not about the differences that we share. It is about what we all hold in common. Because we are all people. We are all part of the human race. We are all made in the image of God. And the truth of the matter is, if you cut me, I don't care if I'm red, purple, pink, black, brown, whatever, it's going to be red blood. We all bleed the same. There is a commonality that we share. And we are all, we're all broken inside of it, regardless of the differences that we share. And we need healing. And the healing for families, the foundation for families, God's blueprint, it's found in God himself in Christ Jesus. I love Colossians 1.15. It says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Christ. And he holds us together in the way that we're to be bound together. A number of years ago, Tightrope Walker was walking across Niagara Falls, headed from uh, the United States to Canada, a length of six football fields. Some of us watched a little football yesterday. That's quite a length. 200 yards above the Niagara River. And so as this guy took off, 
He was ready to go without any kind of safety, but ABC happened to be filming the event of this uh, tightrope walker, and so they made him wear a safety cable. And I guess the reason was they didn't want to uh, have him go splat on TV in case things didn't work out. As he took off across the wind and the mist that's blowing in his face, and as he began to walk that tightrope, uh, you know, a very difficult thing to do, it reminded me, uh, as I thought about this message, of the comparison of that and family and marriage. Uh, we walk a tightrope into the winds of opposition that oppose families today, that oppose God's blueprint of a husband and a wife and, and of children and of what God wants for all of us, and that we need to be we need to be tethered. We need to be connected to that safety line of God's word and people that love Him and that love us, and the principles of God from His word that keep us safe and keep us thriving. Well, anyways, we go to our text in Genesis chapters two and three. We see this couple, and you know they're navigating love, 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 you know, what it is to love. And, you know, uh, Adam and Eve are talking, and Eve says, do you love me, baby? He says, who else? You know, <laughs> I mean, at this point, <laughs> right? But God would develop that love. So this first point we look at, uh, first part of our narrative, is the honeymoon ends and trouble begins. In verse 1, we learn of a serpent, of one who comes to bring trouble in. Someone has said, if, wedding, if the wedding is the dream, then marriage is the alarm clock. So it would be in paradise that day. Trouble often comes early and stays late. Matter of fact, it's interesting if you look through chapters 3 and 4, you see that this first family certainly had some high-octane struggles that we hear about today. In chapter 3, they're evicted from their home that, of course, they so deeply love, known as paradise, the Garden of Eden. Chapter 4, they lose a child. They go through that immense pain. And then also, in the end of chapter 4, they have a son who goes rogue. So <laughs> their hearts are broken with a son who leaves. And so they face adversity, and so do families today. Man, I, everybody I talk to has got problems. You know, sometimes I feel better. I think I got problems. I'll just call somebody, and I'll find some other problems to get my mind off of me as it seems like we're facing such different struggles. And we have an adversary who loves to <laughs> emphasize those struggles and to divide us from God and from one another. And I love Paul talks about in Corinthians, he says, we are not ignorant of Satan's devices, of his schemes that he uses. And, and I want you to notice in our text here in verses 1 through 5, we find a description of his schemes that he uses. Let me just go ahead and read 1 through 5, and then we'll look at this. 
The serpent was more crafty than the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So first, from this section of scripture, what does the serpent do? He challenges God's love. Did God really say? Can, can we really trust God? Does he really care about you? Do you really have to stay in this relationship because that person that you're supposed to love is not being so lovable right now and maybe they don't deserve for you to love them back? And God says, slow down. I brought you together. Satan challenged the love of God and he whispers today in many couples' ears, why not just hang it up? Why do you want to stick this out? Hey, look, People are not perfect. We're all sinners. It's easy to get offended. It's easy to get upset with one another. But how beautiful when we are able. Sometimes we don't. Okay, I get it. But how beautiful it is, you know, when you've been married. Well, you know, seeing I've been married over 30 years, I don't want to get the years wrong in case I make a little hair there. Uh... But, you know, it's so neat to look back and say, wow, we've kind of helped raise each other. You know, we've made it through all these years. Certainly, things are never perfect. But the mercy of God in being able to do that. And, and we love each other. Satan, he challenged God's love. And so he challenges our love for one another. Secondly, there's a challenge to the word of God. Notice what he says there in verse 4. You will surely die, for God knows when you eat up your eyes will be open, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. He says, hey, you're not going to die if you eat of this. But we know it still happens with sin. What does sin do? Sin separates us. Not only separates us from the forgiveness of God, but it separates us from one another. We're separated from the church. We're separated from the biblical accountability God wants us to have. We find ourselves not even wanting to be in the Bible, separated from the truth of God, and then ultimately from God himself. There's a marriage counselor uh, traveling around the country, and he said often when he speaks to groups, he asks them two questions. He says, how many of you here have a daily time with God by yourselves? And the second question is, how many of you married couples pray together? He said the answer to the first question usually gets about 10% of the people actually take time to find, to be alone with God each day. Only 5%, he's discovered typically, pray with their spouse. It's hard to know God when you don't spend time with him. And it's hard to know God's mind, his word, when you don't read it. 
it is critical and it is important. Um, and then thirdly, he challenges God's love. He challenges his word. And then he replaces God's love and word with his own lie, his own substitute. In verse 5, God knows. God knows in that day. He, he, he's got a perversion of God's truth that he wants to feed you. He says, if you just listen to me instead of God, you'll be much happier. You see, God made us in his image. Satan's temptation is say, make God in your image. Turn it upside down. Twist it around. You'll find happiness not in being what God made you to be, but making God who you want to be. That was the temptation to start questioning his love, to start questioning his word. And ult the ultimate end of that is you turn away from God. You turn away from his church. You leave what you need. You miss what you desperately long for in him. Suddenly, instead of going to be with God's people and growing together in the grace and knowledge of God, accountable together in a group of people, which we call the church, suddenly we're going to a psychoanalyst and paying them $100 an hour to fix us. God says, I have what you deeply need, what you deeply long for, what you deeply need. So often today, what I find is there is, a, and I want to be careful here because there is a place, obviously, for our emotions and our feelings. But we want to be careful that the decisions we make and the hope that we have are not only based on how we feel. Because sometimes our feelings can lead us astray. S sometimes our feelings can get us into trouble. That's why we need to know the foundation and the truth of God's design that is discovered in his word. Because sometimes it, I don't feel right. Sometimes I feel like doing the wrong thing. And that is not what I need. And Satan is there to put his lie in as a substitute to get us into trouble. So verse 6, uh, we see that substitute he offers. That's what it tells us in the text here. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. When I thought about verse 6, what came to my mind was 1 John 2.16. And in 1 John 2.16, it tells us about sin. It says... The cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. So what happens? Man, we got these cravings. Man, I gotta have it. Gotta have it. Gotta have it now. Ooh, it's gonna feel so good if I just get that. Woo! That's that craving, right? And, and, and then, of course, from the window of the soul, the eyes, the lust of his eyes, and there it is, there it is, I'm going for it, I'm going for it. And the boasting of what he has and does, I got it, I can get it, it wants me, and here I am, right? But God says, that does not come from me. Man, that's the world talking. That is Satan 
giving his substitute, his lie. And, and that is what he is presenting to you. Hey, you know, don't listen to what God says. Challenge him in his love. Hey, just take a bite of it. But God said, oh, don't listen to what God said. Listen to his word. I got a better idea. And, of course, that better idea leads to trouble. You know, the woodpecker, and I saw a woodpecker the other day, Lydia lady at the house. I said, Lydia, look at that bird. That bird's so beautiful. And she, man, what's it? You're really excited about this bird. So she walked over the window and she looked at it. That's a woodpecker. I said, yeah, that is a woodpecker. Good observation. They're kind of cool looking. But anyway, what's a woodpecker do? A woodpecker looks for the soft spot in the tree, and then it goes to work. That's what happens with our enemy. He finds that soft spot, and he goes to work, and he has a lie that is a substitute for God's truth, that he looks for that soft spot, that he looks to interject, and he knows how to do it. Heard a story of a woman, her husband, he was so cheap. I mean, so cheap. Anyway, she said, honey, I'm ready to go shopping. It's okay to go shopping, just don't buy anything. But, okay, but i got to go shopping. Remember, don't buy anything. Well, I'm just going to look. Okay, but don't buy anything. Well, you know what happened? She came back a couple hours later, had a new, beautiful, expensive dress. He goes, honey, I told you don't buy anything. And you said, don't worry, I won't buy anything. What happened? She said, well, I put on this dress, and I looked in the mirror, and I said, mm, that looks good. And she said, you won't believe it, but the devil stole it. And do you know what he said? He said, mm, that looks good. And her husband said, well, you should have said, get thee behind me, Satan. She said, I did. And do you know what he said? Mm, it looks good back there, too. <laughs> so I bought it. That's how temptation... That's how it works. Look in uh, verse 5. I mean, the verbs just fly out from the text. Um, where it tell, I mean, verse 6, where she says, um, took, ate, gave, ate. These verbs just fly out there. What does it lend to? It moves us toward the most diabolical virus in human history, S-I-N, sin that entered the picture. You know, today we try to find creative ways to talk about sin. People have hang-ups. People have baggage. People make mistakes. Uh, but the Bible just says, hey man, you're eat up with a disease called sin that, that breaks people. But you know, Jesus said in Mark 2.17, um, he said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call righteous, but sinners. So he came for us because the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that all is a little word. It's got a big meaning. All of us fall into that picture and that struggle. And yet, so often, we do not want to confess to our sin. We do not want others to see our sin. We want to justify our sin. A good friend of mine, I talk, I'll talk to him about once a week, check on him. 
I've, I've told you about him. His wife died a couple of years ago. See how he's doing. I called him this week, and oh, he was mad. Ooh, he was mad. He got a traffic ticket. Don't you ever make him mad. Anyway, he ran through a red light, a traffic light. And I said, well, what happened? I said, was it yellow? He said, no, it was red. I said, and you ran through the light? He said, yeah. He said, but there was a guy beside me, another car, and they ran through the light too. He said, I, tell you, I was so mad. I told the policeman, I said, you know, there were two of us. Why did you come after me and not him? And I said, here's the problem. You're guilty. And you know what he said? Nothing. Sometimes silence says it all, right? What happened? He was nailed. And, and that's what's so difficult about sin, right? Is the truth of the matter is, when we see our sin, we realize, I need help. I need a Savior. You know, it's like the guy, we're, we live in this age, stop judging me. You're judging me. Right? We hear that all the time. Well, think about this. If you say, Todd, you're judging me, what am I going to say? Well, you're judging me. You know what Jesus said? Jesus said in um, John 5, 39, stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. So what's he saying? You're going to judge, judge rightly. You know, that passage in Matthew 7 that's so often misquoted, you know, get that log out of your eye, don't judge, you know. But it says, before you get the speck out of your brother's eye. So what's it saying? He's still got something to deal with there. If you love him, you need to deal with it. But first, you've got to make sure you get that massive log out of your eye. And once you do that, then in love, you can deal with your brother and sister's sin that they're dealing with, with the judgment that's there. All right, so anyway, that's the first one. Second layer is innocent ends and the cover-up begins. Look at verse 7 here in our text. Then the eyes of both of them were open. They realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So, man, they had the 100% pure, fashionable fig leaf uh, clothing that they made that expensive one. But, but you know, that, that, didn't, that wasn't enough. Uh, verse 9 says, the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid and he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree? I command you not to eat from. And the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And of course the woman says the serpent's fault. The serpent was into the end of the chain. So, you know, he's not going to be able to blame anybody. But the cover-up begins. So what's the first thing that's noticed? They become self-conscious. It says here in verse 7, they realized they were naked. Shame entered the picture because before they didn't have temptation because sin wasn't a part of the equation. Now sin has entered and suddenly shame accompanies it because they realize they're doing something they should not have done. They were nailed. They are guilty. They were caught red-handed. So they became aware of that. Secondly, not only did they become self-conscious, but there was isolation associated with it. 
the idea of covering themselves also would consummate in withdrawing from one another, not just covering up their bodies, but the deep intimacy they had with each other. Trouble came into paradise. Suddenly, their closeness took a hit because there were wedges in their relationship. You know, the wife said to her husband, we have a strange and wonderful relationship. You're strange and I'm wonderful. <laughs> but now suddenly they're both strange as sins entered the picture. And this led to a third thing. They became afraid. He said, we hid. Why did they hide? Out of fear. You know, they would walk with God in the garden. It was just a comfortable, relaxed walk because there was nothing there that brought a wedge separation into the relationship. But now with sin in the picture, there's something that's blocking that comfortable relationship that God wants them to have. There's guilt, there's shame. You know, it's funny. I think about, like, I mentioned my friend, mad because he got a ticket, but, man, how often? You know, I'll be driving down the road. I hate it when a policeman gets behind me. Any of y'all have this problem? I mean, he's behind me, and I'm thinking, if he don't stop me, what have I done? Am I speeding? Is there a taillight out? He's probably not thinking about any of that. But, but what happens? That, you know, there's the authority behind me, and so my mind's going crazy thinking about, am I guilty? Am I guilty? And, and what happens, man? I just want him to pass me and get out of there because it's driving me nuts being behind me. And so when there's guilt in our lives, we want to hide. We want to run away. And then blame is often used. You know, it's uh, God, it's uh, her fault, actually, Adam said. <laughs> and then ultimately, he said, it's your fault, God, because it's the woman you, you gave me, right? So in that blame game, that occurs. And then there's one last thing here as we close. Um, deception ends... And redemption begins. In verse 15, we have that wonderful prophecy. It talks about God's plan. How the victor, the apparent victor now, who guides sin, temptation, he's going to be crushed by one who is to come. And, you know, I, I love that. But anyway... We've already talked about how they covered themselves up because they realized they were naked and they dealt with shame. In verse 21, drop down to verse 21 of our text, it says, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. So the fig leaves weren't enough, so God decided, I, I've got to clothe them. So I take some animal skins. What happened? There was sin. There was shame. It had to be covered. And so animal skins became the covering. But what happened for that to occur? An animal had to die. Right? Now, we don't know which animal. It doesn't say. But uh, let's just, you know, like we often talk about when we watch The Chosen, sanctified imagination. You just usually... Now, I'm not claiming my imagination is always sanctified, but for a moment, let's imagine that too, okay? <laughs> so, sanctified imagination. Uh, 
What kind of animal? That's exactly what I thought. But she, I mean, oh, soft. There was one required for each of them, right? One, one for Adam and one for Eve. One for each one. Then you go to the ten plagues and remember the last plague and a sacrifice had to be made and there was a lamb for each household. Right? And then we go a little bit further and we discover the high priest who each year would go into the Holy of Holies and there was a lamb that was offered for the sins of the entire nation. Right? And then we come to John chapter 1. And we see John the Baptist saying, Behold, or look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who takes all our sins. So here's the choice that we ultimately have um, in family and marriage relationship and honestly just as people. Are we going to run from God because of our sin and shame or are we going to run to God? Are we going to look for a place to hide for the rest of our lives because we know that we are guilty? Or will we run to the one covering that promises to cover our sin so that we are clean and pure before the living God? Just like the Lamb of God who was, who was spotless and without blemish. Now when the Father looks upon us, that's how He views us. So we can either spend our lives running from, or we can run to Him. And that is the good news of the gospel. It is the message of reconciliation. It is the call for every one of us. Now, as I weave this thing together and I close this up, I'm going to look at true, two truths because I want to bring this back to marriages. And to the husband and to the wife and in their struggle. Two truths. Number one, there are no such thing as perfect marriages because there's no such thing as perfect husbands and there's no such thing as perfect wives. And if there's anybody here that tells me any differently, I want to have a conference with your spouse and see if I might get a different testimony. Hallelujah! You know... Uh, yeah, and what can be said. So the first point we live, we live in a fallen world. We're fallen people, we need to remember that. And the second point is simply this. Um, it's the last point. You are a sinner married to a sinner. So you know what the happiest marriage is? The happiest marriage is a sinner married to a sinner who is a forgiver married to a forgiver. The sooner we can forgive one another, the sooner we can experience life and peace. And that's just crucial to that union that God wants us to have. The best sinners are forgivers <laughs> because forgiveness will be needed. And you know what it comes back to? It comes back to understanding that we've been forgiven. 
You know, we all uh, love the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, 9 through 13. It's wonderful, you know. I, I can remember it was so funny. I'd memorized a different translation. There was a time I was the uh, chaplain of my high school football team. Uh, and man, I never could get that thing right in the King James, you know. <sighs> the coach had kind of helped me, coached me through it. We'd all stay together at the end of the game. But anyway, <laughs> I'd go on. You get to verses 14 and 15. And here's what it says. If you forgive men, or if you forgive people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive them when they sin against you, your Father won't forgive you. So what does that mean? Does that mean that God doesn't totally forgive? No, it means you don't totally understand. God, when He forgives you, He forgives you. And guys, when your loved one sins against you, you are not called to just partially forgive. You need to understand the depth of which you have been forgiven in Christ Jesus. That the Lamb of God has made you clean as He is clean, pure as you are pure. And thus it is to lead you to have a forgiving heart towards your loved one. Not to hold on to that grudge. Not to stick to that pain. But to tether yourself to the love of God and to the word of God and to the people of God and to find a foundation that this world does not offer in God. You see, if the church is about anything, it is about sinners celebrating that they have been forgiven in Jesus Christ. It is not about how great you and I are. It is about how great our God is. And how deeply he has forgiven us. Our value, our worth is being associated with him. We are special and a special creation because we have experienced a special redemption. So I, I don't know where you are this weekend. You know, after Thanksgiving, having everybody together in the house, you, there might be some sin that came out, you know. Right, need some taste of redemption. Well, I'm here to offer you the hope that whatever it is, Jesus died for it. Don't run from him. Run to him. Let's pray. God, I, I thank you this morning. This Christmas season, we focus on a baby. But our real focus is on why the baby came. And what the baby will do. And thank you, Father, for that redemption. And God, I, I just pray for each of us here. Uh, my hope is that you've spoken far beyond what I've said. And that your spirit has touched someone. Or whether it's online or here in person. Father, that we would simply listen to you and agree and say yes. And, and Father, experience the redemption and forgiveness uh, in our lives and be willing to share that forgiveness with others, Lord. And just do that work this morning with an altar that's open and hearts that need you. We just want to say yes to your call, Lord. Um, speak to us and may we obey. In Christ's name, amen.